hidden finance, rogue networks, and secret sorcery. The Fascist International, 9-11, and Penetrated Operations. Hidden finance, rogue networks, and secret sorcery. The Fascist International, 9-11, and Penetrated Operations. You're listening to Uniquilibrium, presented by Hakim Alebokis Alexander on Call-In Social Podcasting and presented by and presented for World Reading Club in association with ExercisingYourMind.com and Uniquilibrium. This edition's reading focus comes to us from Hidden Finance, Rogue Networks, and Secret Sorcery, The Fascist International, 9-11, and Penetrated Operations by Joseph P. Farrell. It was copywritten in uh, 2016. If you've kept up with uh, any of some of my readings before for World Reading Club, you will have heard some reading from Joseph P. Farrell's uh, his uh, Babylon's Banksters, and that has been done mostly on uh, wisdom which is uh, Social Audio Inc. and also on my podcast on Spreaker which is also another social podcasting network. Here in this talk I will put um, the link from the first part of Babylon's Banksters that I read on Wisdom so you can have access to that and listen to it. I'll also put the link in here to the Spreaker podcast that's hosting it, which is actually one where you'll be able to uh, download it. So let's take a look there and put that link in to get this started. It's part of the World Reading Club. And let's take a look here. Curious, which one did I put that under? Would it be here? Yes, Babylon's Banksters is right here. Very good. So Babylon's Banksters, deep, uh, the alchemy of deep physics, high finance, and ancient religion. So I'm going to get that dropped in here right now. That's the last one for Spreaker. And it's good to go. Perfect. So now I've got those links. Hello, Derek and Agni. <coughs> so Hidden Finance, Rogue Networks, and Secret Sorcery, The Fascist International, 9-11, and Penetrated Operations by Joseph P. Farrell. As I mentioned, I previously... Um, did some reading from Babylon's Banksters on my podcast on Spreaker 
and wisdom. So the links are there if you'd like to hear that. Um, there's also a PDF to the book Babylon's Banksters. Um, I'll, I'll actually publish or post that here. That's actually a really good idea. Um, it's uh, free. You can. It's on archive.org. Better get it from archive.org before the powers that be are trying to take it down. So yeah, let me put that link in there. Babylon's Banksters is an excellent book. If for nothing else, like I always say, I mean, I don't know about any of these things that are true. I know that, for example, um, yesterday and on Monday earlier this week, I met with Christopher Birkenbein, who is a uh, scientist with a degree in applied physics, who is a project manor at manager at NASA. We've become good friends, and we met a couple times since he's here in Virginia doing some work in project management at Langley Air Force Base. He usually works at Edwards Air Force Base in California um, at NASA over there with the Armstrong Flight Research Center. And it was interesting, one of our conversations we had yesterday at the Barnes & Noble in, uh, in Newport News where he was staying. And one of the things we talked about were conspiracy theories and how one thing he pointed out He's very level-headed. He always pushes back on a lot of, especially a lot of the metaphysical things I talk about, like numerology and tarot and all that. But that's why we've become good friends, because he understands that I can take it, and that he pushes with his, his understanding from science and working with NASA and things like that, and that I don't uh, keep my mind closed, that I'm open to being wrong. And one of the things he pointed out about conspiracy theories, he says, one thing I'll give them credit for, one of the good ones, is that they bring to light a lot of research and things like that from the scientific and other communities that I might not normally see. And even though I don't agree with their conclusions, he says it's interesting the things that they find in research. And I think that I strongly agree with that. Uh, I feel like that's one of the ways that I proceed with a lot of these things. I've actually said before that one of the reasons why I like conspiracy theories is because they actually push me more into being able to research the science and history behind what the so-called conspiracy theorists are researching to, to, to know whether or not they're, what they're speaking about is truth. Is it, is it at least verifiable? Are some of the things they're talking about that happened, um, can they be traced back? So let's take a look. Uh, there's a very long preface and preface, which is uh, in the beginning here of Hidden Finance, Rogue Networks, and Secret Sorcery. Alright, starts with a quote. The price for rejecting this conspiracy theory is to accept a coincidence theory. David Ray Griffin. Every once in a while I'll read some of the references here. So David Ray Griffin, The New Pearl Harbor, Disturbing Questions About the Bush Administration and 9-11 from Northampton, Massachusetts, Olive Branch Press, 2004. <clears throat> Anyone writing on the 9-11 tragedy is doomed to invoke the ire of some faction within the 9-11 truth community. Everyone has some theory to advance on who did it and why. And in the case of the destruction of the World Trade Center complex, hypotheses about the mechanism of its destruction abound, with each party defending its favored hypothesis as to what constituted the murder weapon and hurling accusations oftentimes of a very acrimonious and ad hominem nature against advocates and adherents of other hypotheses. To the extent detached discussion of the merits 
and the merits of each is all but impossible. The atmosphere of calm discussion and consideration has been all but poisoned by these debates. To be sure, the official explanation of the collapse of the Twin Towers, the so-called pancake theory that the structures were weakened by burning airplane fuel, is nonsense. The 9-11 truth movement quickly focused on some aspect of a controlled demolition theory as the murder weapon. The trouble is, this theory has at least four major variants, ranging from standard controlled demolitions using standard explosive techniques to increasingly exotic explanations from nanothermite to mini-nukes and, finally, to some sort of directed and or exotic energy weapons system. Within the wider context of these reinterpretations, other theories are advanced. There were no airplanes at all. The airplanes were remotely piloted. The airplanes carried missiles and so on. Nevertheless, the acrimoniousness of debate is somewhat comprehensible, for establishing the exact mechanism of the murder weapon is a profound clue as to who was ultimately responsible for the mass murders that took place on that day. The question of who did it is inextricably, inextricably linked to the questions of what happened and how was it done. An equally pertinent question might be, can the various hypotheses of the mechanisms of the World Trade Center Twin Towers collapse be harmonized? If so, why bother to use several mechanisms? Were the same parties involved in the use of these mechanisms? Or do different mechanisms signal the involvement of different groups? perhaps in conflict with each other. September 11, 2001 was a day few of us will ever forget. For me personally, most of my life has moved between the twin events that defined a whole history and transmuted American and world culture in an almost diabolically alchemical way. The other event was, of course, the assassination of President John F. Kennedy when I was a young boy. Then, as in 2001, I was at home watching the events unfold on television as they happened. In 1963, I was six years old and homesick from school. My mother sat on the couch sewing and smoking a cigarette and watching one of her favorite soap operas, CBS's As the World Turns, while I sat on the floor eating some chicken soup. The program was interrupted with the announcement that the president may have been shot in Dallas. She said quietly, oh my God. In 2001, I had just finished my graveyard shift at the casino where I was an overnight floor manager and pit boss and had come home and gone to bed. At that time, I had a friend staying with me who woke up emerging groggy-eyed from the guest bedroom. Just as I was going to sleep, he had turned on the television to watch the morning news. As I began to doze off, suddenly from the living room, I heard shouts of, Oh my God! Oh my God! As if the echo of tragedy were rippling across time and space. In between those two events that have so defined American culture and domestic and foreign policy, I observed many others, the Watergate break-in and subsequent escalating crisis, the Ruby Ridge affair, the murder of the Branch Davidians at Waco, the Oklahoma City bombing, which again, I watched on the local news in Tulsa as the events unfold the Pan Am Flight 800 Lockerbie disaster, the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, and a host of banking scandals from the collapse of the Bank of Credit and Commerce International 
the Vatican Bank scandal of the 1980s, the savings and loan scandal, the collapse of the Nugent Hand Bank, and so on. All of these things may seem entirely unrelated to the architecture of the 9-11 tragedy, and yet, as most research to date has uncovered, there are profound and detailed connections between them. Consider just the parallels between the assassination of President Kennedy and the 9-11 tragedy. One, in both cases, the events signaled or were used to remake American foreign and domestic policy in a profound fashion, and this included the normalization of the use of war in that policy. Two, in both cases, there were clear examples of security stripping around the president, and in the case of 9-11, this extended to security stripping the entire country itself. Three, in both cases, the official version of events were analyzed by independent investigators unsatisfied with the official explanations. The results of their investigations, when viewed synoptically, uncovered a vast architecture of conspiracy consisting of various factional interests, each of which had the means, motive, and opportunity to orchestrate the events. Four. In both cases, many of these investigations uncovered indications that clearly implied some sort of connection to post-war fascist and Nazi organizations, and as will be discovered in the main text, in both cases, the 9-11 investigations largely ignored these clues in their hypothetical constructions of the architecture of the conspiracy. Radical Islamic terrorists, rogue neoconservative or neocon elements within the national security structure, the Bush family's connection to Saudi Arabia via the Carlyle Group, or even moles could be blamed for the event, but never fascists. Five, in both cases, aspects of the events indicated that a coup d'etat had been successfully accomplished. Six, in both cases, the events were accompanied by suspicious financial activity indicating that someone had prior knowledge of the events and profited from it, an indicator of deep planning and inside knowledge. And finally, and not the least significantly, though it is another of those ignored set of clues by the vast majority of researchers, in both cases, the events themselves were surrounded with aspects of an esoteric and occult symbolic context that gave indication that they were planned as a deep rituals of ceremonial and alchemical magic and as vast social engineering networks. The disturbing implication about this comparison, and there are many more such points of continuity between the two events, is that the MO, or modus operandi, of the perpetrators is essentially the same. And this is an indicator that perhaps the perpetrators, or at least the organizational structures and networks behind both, are the same. This carries with it yet another equally, if not more disturbing, implication. The latter event was the logical end of the former. In any case, in 2001, unable to go to sleep as my friend was exclaiming, Oh my God! I put on my bathrobe and came out into the living room and asked him what was happening. And he pointed to the television screen and simply said, Look! There I saw the North Tower of the World Trade Center in New York City burning. The news commentators were saying that apparently an airplane had flown into the tower. Then, as we watched, United Airlines Flight 175 struck the South Tower. The words, oh my God, were heard again from both of us. At that moment, 
We and everyone else in America knew that the country was under attack. The question was, and remains, by whom? We both watched, stunned into silence, glued to the television when the South Tower came down. And when it did, I made a little mental note to count. It appeared to have fallen at nearly free fall speed. When the North Tower collapsed at the same speed, I knew something was dreadfully wrong. In the coming hours and days, the speculations from the talking heads on television immediately began. Witnesses, quote unquote, were interviewed who, to my mind at least, seemed to be rehearsing well-learned lines about the fires from the airplanes somehow causing the towers to collapse. The mechanism of the collapse appeared to me to be highly unusual. It both looked like, and did not look like, a standard controlled demolition. As it turned out, and as we shall see, I was not alone that day having doubts and questions about the emerging narrative as if to underscore my horrified intuitions. My friend and I watched as the news began to be reported that the Pentagon had been struck as well. In the coming days and weeks, as the story unfolded, the other question that began to disturb me, where was the debris from the airplane that supposedly crashed into it? I was not alone in asking this question either. About four weeks after 9-11, another friend called me to ask me if the towers had collapsed due to the same type of weird physics or words to that effect, that I had written about in my first book. I told him that this was in fact my opinion, but that I did not want to talk about it any further. In other words, on 9-11 itself, the 9-11 truth movement was born, as critics of the official conspiracy theory combed over every chronological, technical, and testimonial detail in the ensuing years, offering alternative explanations of how the towers had come down, of what had actually hit the Pentagon, of what happened on Flight 93. Alternative theories and scenarios of who was responsible and what their motivations may have been were proposed. In the course of these investigations by several researchers in the years since 9-11, two basic theories have emerged and have dominated the 9-11 truth research community ever since. The let it happen on purpose or LIHOP hypothesis L-I-H-O-P hypothesis made and made the made it happen on purpose, MIHOP or M-I-H-O-P hypothesis. A, LIHOP, L-I-H-O-P, let it happen on purpose, and MIHOP, M-I-H-O-P, made it happen on purpose. One, the basic premises of LIHOP and MIHOP. The first, and at that time most popular, emergent theory was that there were essentially two different intertwined levels to the events of 9-11. At one level, the public level and the government's own officially sponsored conspiracy theory, there were the alleged terrorists flying the planes themselves. But at a deeper level were the agencies of the U.S. federal government, which, the critics argued, had known of the operation in advance and which had let it happen on purpose in order to create a crisis of public opinion that would allow them to project American military power into the Middle East in order to secure the region's energy resources. The second theory, that of a distinct but growing minority, was that the first level of the operation, the terrorists, 
were simply patsies, and that the entire operation was planned and executed at the second deeper level by rogue elements, or a rogue network, operating within and under the cover of the American military and intelligence establishments. This group pointed out that the whole 9-11 operation was conducted at exactly the same time there were a number of American military drills taking place, some of them involving, you guessed it, hijacked airliners being used for attacks on American targets. This group pointed out that the probability of terrorists planning and conducting their operations coincidentally with these drills was vanishingly small, and hence the operation had to have been planned at some level with some degree of participation and complicity by the American national security structure itself. It was here that the whole idea of a rogue network idea was born. But again, the goal was the same. It was precisely for the purpose of creating an incident to shock the climate of domestic and world opinion to allow the projection of American military power into the Middle East to seize and dominate the world's oil supplies. The late Michael Rupert, for example, viewed 9-11 in the context of what he called the most significant event in human history, the end of the age of oil. Many if not most researchers share this view of the ultimate geopolitical motivations behind the attacks. On this rather conventional analysis of the motivations behind the attacks, 9-11 was a classic, if bloody, textbook case of a false flag operation. Advocates both of the LIHOP theory and of the MIHOP theory often point to the neoconservative group behind the project for a new American century as being a potential contender for the rogue elements within the American intelligence military industrial finance complex that had pulled off the event. This group had stated that a new Pearl Harbor would be needed to galvanize American public opinion for a vast and prolonged military effort in the Middle East. Oil was the motivation, terrorism was the cover story, and 9-11 was the activating event the new Pearl Harbor that provided the pretext for war. Even President Bush himself at one point obliged this interpretation and its advocates by calling the event a new Pearl Harbor. Two, critiques of the oil motivation, a multi-layered operation with multiple objectives. While certainly true at one level, 9-11 is about much more than oil and terrorism. For author Laurent Guillenot, 9-11 was really but the pretext for American militarization of the planet, an agenda that upon a little reflection might be about much more than just controlling the petroleum resources of the planet. As Guillenot observes, President George W. Bush in a speech delivered on September 20, 2001 stated that this new type of war was a war against an invisible enemy and that it would not end quote, until every terrorist group of global reach has been found, stopped, and defeated, end quote. Global wars against invisible enemies convey the real significance of the 9-11 attacks. For viewed in this light, it was an event that could be used, and was, to justify perpetual war, and the domestic policies and surveillance state required to conduct it. The day after the attacks, presidential rhetoric quickly transformed the event from a terrorist attack into a cosmological and even metaphysical conflict. As the president announced, 
a monumental struggle of good versus evil. Others, picking up on this cosmological meme, have noted that the event served really to legitimize the criminality and criminalization of the upper echelons of the state. For occult and Nazi survival scholar Peter Lavenda, 9-11 additionally functions as the sanctioning event for state-sponsored paranoia. He says, Paranoia becomes institutionalized. It is appropriated by the government as its own prerogative. The state determines the nature and quality of the paranoia. It creates intelligence agencies whose sole purpose is to give a form to, to give form to paranoia, to enshrine paranoia as one of the necessary qualities of an observant and caring state, to prove that paranoia is an acceptable characteristic of the paternalistic <coughs> regime. The citizens are not allowed to become paranoid unless it is at government direction and sanction. Individual cases of paranoia are frowned upon. The state tells us that if we are not paranoid the way it is paranoid and about the same things, it's because we don't have all the facts about terrorism, fundamentalism, communism, foreign countries, weapons of mass destruction, sleeper cells. The state has all the facts, classified documents, wiretap transcripts, intelligence feeds, high altitude reconnaissance images, none of which the citizen is permitted to see. It does not realize that the logical conclusion of all this paranoia is suspicion of the state apparatus itself. But 9-11 is much more than even this. Because for Lavenda and fellow occult researcher S.K. Bain, 9-11 is also an event with the clear and detailed components of a magical ritual sacrifice of massive scale. It exemplifies detailed planning in depth for an exact, for an act of ceremonial magic. It exemplifies detailed planning in depth for an act of ceremonial magic and thus can be studied as a textbook or grimoire for magical operations. Hovering in between these extremes of interpretation from the mundane one of a false flag event to seize the oil of the Middle East and Central Asia to the arcane one of ritual magic and sacrifice in a cosmological struggle of good and evil are those theories that view 9-11's primary motivation as that of a financial crime of a high order. 9-11 was a financial crime to cover up a vast fraud and fraudulent system rather than a political act. Such analyses, taken at face value and in combination, imply that 9-11 was more than a terrorist or even a false flag operation. It was, and was planned as, a multi-layered operation whose architecture was designed to accomplish several objectives in one efficient event, and this in turn implies that its planners were much more than Islamic funda fundamentalists, but people with detailed inside financial, political, and even occult knowledge. The financial and occult clues are profound indicators of the various perpetrators involved in each layer of the operation and what their motivations were. 3. Webster Griffin Tarpley's critique of the LIHOP hypotheses, a coup, thermonuclear blackmail, and possible indications of a third player. 
One of the most well-known and respected researchers of the 9-11 conspiracy's architecture is Webster Griffin Tarpley, who has exposed indications of a possible third layer to the event, above and beyond that of the rogue element within the U.S. national security apparatus required by the let it happen on purpose and made it happen on purpose, LIHOP and MIHOP hypotheses. While this case will require the detailed examination of the main text to be completely comprehensible, an overview is necessitated here in order to make the thesis and methodological approaches of this book more readily apparent. Tarpley argues the MIHOP position in his celebrated and detailed book, 9-11 Synthetic Terror, Made in the USA, now in its fifth edition. The MIHOP hypothesis represents the analytical point of view which sees the events of September 11, 2001 as a deliberate provocation manufactured by an outlaw network of high officials infesting the military and security apparatus of the United States and Great Britain, a military network or a network ultimately dominated by Wall Street and City of London financiers. With this in hand, Harpley notes that the LIHOP hypothesis, that's the let it happen on purpose hypothesis, is subject to a number of problems which, in the end, render it an inadequate analytical and synthetic template by which to view the events and aftermath of that day. LIHOP assumes that bin Laden, Al-Qaeda, Atta, and company actually have at least a semi-independent existence and possess the will and the physical technical capability to strike the United States in the ways seen on 9-11. But LIHOP also posits that the Al-Qaeda attack could not have been successful without the active cooperation of elements of the Pentagon and Bush administration who deliberately sabotaged U.S. air defenses so as to allow the suicide pilots to reach their targets at the World Trade Center and Pentagon. In 2002 and 2003, LIHOP Present, represented progress beyond the unanswered questions way station. In 2002 and 2003, LIHOP represented progress beyond the unanswered questions way station. But here too, as more new material has come to light, LIHOP has also become untenable. LIHOP, again, let it happen on purpose, is increasingly at war with masses of evidence. A more outre version of LIHOP admits that Atta and his cohorts were working for the CIA, but only as gun runners and drug runners, not terrorists. At a certain point, this view alleges the drug runners des decided to revolt against their arrogant CIA masters by blowing up the World Trade Center and the Pentagon? But even this recondite scheme cannot address the absence of air defense for one hour and 45 minutes, nor the controlled demolition which overtook the two trade towers. There thus emerged what Tarpley calls the Bush-Cheney MIHOP position. Remember, made it happen on purpose position, i.e. that the president and vice president were active planners of the operation a position Tarpley does not find credible, since it would mean leaving a part of the operational details in the hands of a moron and a man who has a history of heart trouble and who is living on borrowed time. Bush and Cheney may have had some limited knowledge or even planning role, but were not involved at the deepest level of level two, and certainly not in that all-important third level. 
Given these objections to LIHOP and various versions of the Bush-Cheney-MIHOP hypotheses, Tarpley goes on to argue that the tragedy of 9-11 was an orchestrated coup d'etat, a false flag event of state-sponsored synthetic terror designed to unleash the clash of civilizations of Samuel Huntington's famous book by that name. The goal was to shock the entire U.S. political system, the White House, the executive departments, the Congress, the courts, the political parties, the mass media, publishing and journalism, and the public in general out of their inertia of normal everyday life into a kind of war psychosis and paranoid obsession with phantom threats agreeable to the outlook of the neocon factions, the modern heirs of Carl Schmitt, Hitler's lawyer. The United States had to be mobilized on the basis of pure hysteria for the clash of civilizations. The mention of a Nazi connection, albeit in the tenuous and purely ideological and methodological reference to one of Hitler's lawyers, is significant. For this book argues that the third layer of 9-11, above and beyond the American rogue element, the second layer, is in fact an international fascist one. Before continuing with this cursory review of Tarpley's research, a brief word is necessary about what I mean by this fascist or Nazi international. Many researchers have pointed out the connections of various intelligence agencies, the CIA, KGB, GRU, and so on, to international criminal undergrounds and their drug-running networks. The utility of this intelligence drug-running nexus is twofold. <laughs> For it allows such agencies a, so or a source of large income that is completely free of the oversight of their respective governments, income that can be used in turn to fund a variety of covert operations and black research projects. However, it also provides them not only with a means both of monitoring those criminal organizations and their connections, but also provides them with an independent, internationally extensive source of intelligence. I have contended that in the post-World War II period, the fascist and Nazi elites were connected with these underground criminal organizations and further liaised with the similarly-minded rogue elements within various nations, deep states. In America's case, this meant an effective alliance with the Sullivan and Cromwell crowd, with the American financial and business interests that shared the basic fascist ideology and outlook. I hasten to add that for both parties, this was a post-war marriage of convenience, and from that point of view, 9-11 may have been the announcement of divorce. With this in mind, we return to our review of Tarpley's research, for he presents a number of details and analyses that suggest not only the MIHOP hypotheses, but the divorce hypothesis. For example, crucial to Tarpley's MIHOP hypothesis is the fact that a significant number of war gaming exercises and drills were occurring on 9-11, and that the 9-11 attacks themselves took place within this context, using the cover of the drills to provide confusion in the command and control structure of the country. This fact alone indicates that the detailed planning of 9-11 had to have come at some point from within the American national security and military structure. It is this level that we are calling Level 2, or the Rogue Network. Global Guardian, 
was one of these drills involving all of America's strategic nuclear and thermonuclear arsenal, ICBMs, SLBMs, nuclear bombers, and the doomsday-slash-night watch-slash-looking-glass flying command posts. This drill involved air bases that house hydrogen bombs, such as Barksdale in Louisiana and, and Ofut, or Offutt in Omaha, Nebraska. Both bases where President Bush flew on 9-11 after leaving Florida on Air Force One. The probable reasons for Bush's appearance at these two air bases on that day will be addressed in a moment. Tarpley notes, however, that the motivation for Bush's flight to Offutt Air, air Force Base in Omaha, Nebraska is suggested by the presence at Offutt on 9-11 of, of General Brent Scowcroft. See. Once again, the probable reasons for Bush's appearance at these two air bases on that day will be addressed in a moment. Tarpley notes, however, that the motivation for Bush's flight to Ofut Air Force Base in Omaha, Nebraska, is suggested by the president the presence at Ofut on 9/11 of General Brent Scowcroft and Warren Buffett as a kind of potential committee of public safety. In other words, a group had converged at the command headquarters of America's strategic nuclear forces as a potential element of a coup d'etat, necessitating that President Bush be personally present to reassert control over America's nuclear forces. Thus, on the morning of 9-11, before a single hijacking had been reported, the U.S. had assumed a strategic nuclear posture comparable to that observed during the Cuban Missile Crisis. B-1 and B-52 bombers were in the air. Ballistic missile submarines were at their launch points, presumably near Russia and possibly China. And land-based ICBMs were ready for launch. The air defenses of North America were also on high alert, both in terms of interceptor aircraft and space assets. Everything, in short, was ready for a nuclear first strike like the neocons have talked so much about in recent years. All of this was observed in real time from Moscow by General Leonid Ivashov and his colleagues of the Russian general staff. The combination of mobilization for nuclear war plus the spectacular self-inflicted terrorism of 9-11 was unquestionably designed to provide the backdrop for Bush's announcement, first to Russian President Putin and soon thereafter to the world that the U.S. would seize Afghanistan and also bases in former Soviet Union, Union Central Asia. Anyone wanting to resist such plans had the U.S. nuclear striking force, presumably under the control of the neocon fascist madmen who had organized the attacks, staring him in the face. It is also highly significant that Bush's 9-11 flight itinerary included both Barksdale Air Force Base and Ofut Air Force Base, two nuclear command centers which were part of Global Guardian. Global Guardian was a massive exercise in nuclear blackmail. But how does this constitute a coup d'etat? And why would Bush need to have reasserted control over the nuclear command structure by his personal presidents at Barksdale and Offutt? Tarpley points out that among the components of the Global Guardian thermonuclear war game exercises on 9-11 was the Global Guardian computer network attack exercise. This exercise, he observed, 
or observes, was designed to simulate a cyber attack on Stratcom's computer network, command and control structure by use of a variety of methods. <sighs> Tarpley points out that among the components of the Global Guardian thermonuclear war game exercises on 9-11 was the Global Guardian computer network attack exercise. This exercise, he observed, was, or observes, was designed to simulate a cyber attack on Stratcom's computer network command and control structure by a use of a variety of methods, from denial of service attacks to simulation of an attack from a bad insider with access to a key command and control system, an exercise that suggests the unthinkable, for this bad insider could easily have flipped the drill to live status by being a plant or mole for some other organization, namely the rogue network, and thus missiles might actually have been launched. Here was the invisible government's backdoor to worldwide thermonuclear escalation, if that had been necessary on 9-11. It is precisely here that we begin to get closer to the possibility that the architecture of 9-11 was not a two-tiered operation, i.e. an operation involving the outer layer of the terrorists, the effective patsies of the event, and a deeper layer involving a rogue element within the U.S. military intelligence complex, but a three-tiered operation, with the deepest layer penetrating the operations of the second layer and threatening it with blackmail via a compromised command and control structure. Tarpley summarizes the possibilities of a coup d'etat on 9-11 with Global Guardian as its effective instrument of cover as a surrender of the Bush White House to the coup planners. A surrender, quote, that owed much to the fear that the coup faction were extremists capable of unleashing nuclear war. Here is a portal through which the rogue network could have launched nuclear missiles without the help of Bush. The targets for such missiles could have been Arab or Islamic capitals. If Bush had refused to initiate the war of civilizations in conventional form by attacking Afghanistan. The target could also have been China or Russia. We must never lose sight of the Bush-Putin telephone call on 9-11, which was the central diplomatic and strategic event of the day, even though most 9-11 books do not even mention it. In that telephone call, Bush, in effect, delivered an ultimatum that the United States was determined to seize Afghanistan, plus bases in so former Soviet Central Asia, end quote. Tarpley argues that Putin acceded to these demands, knowing that the USA's effort in Afghanistan would be no more successful than the Soviet one. And because such a large effort in Central Asia and the Middle East would ultimately sap America's strength. There are other significant clues that at its deepest level, 9-11 was not about terrorism, but about a coup attempt by level three against level two. That is to say, by some faction turning against the role group of the American national security military establishment. These clues are found in Bush's statements to the nation on 9-11 and in some statements by his staff shortly thereafter. For example, According to some reports on September 12th and 13th, 2001, Bush's press secretary, Ari Fleischer, indicated 
that the Secret Service had received credible threats on 9-11 from the attackers, notably unspecified, that indicated the White House and Air Force One were also targets. The New York Times itself reported that the threats were viewed as credible because they had been accomplished by the use of transmission and identification codes unique to the presidency itself. French researcher Thierry Maison disclosed the depth and breadth of the attacker's apparent knowledge of these secure and highly classified codes. Codes, quote, And more astonishing still, WorldNet Daily, citing intelligence officers as its sources, said the attackers also had the codes of Drug Enforcement Agency, DEA, the National Reconnaissance Office, NRO, Air Force Intelligence, AFI, Army Intelligence, AI, Naval Intelligence, NI, the Marine Corps Intelligence, MCI, and the Intelligence Services of the State Department and the Department of Energy. Each of these codes is known by only a very small group of officials. No one is authorized to possess several of them. Also, to accept that the attackers were in possession of them supposes either that there exists a method of cracking the codes or that moles have infiltrated each of these intelligence bodies. Technically, it appears to be possible to reconstitute the codes of the American agencies by means of the software, promise, that served to create them. We shall return to the crucial role of the PROMIS, P-R-O-M-I-S, software in the main text. For the moment, it is quite crucial to note and to remember that some of the codes the attackers alleg allegedly knew were those of the super-secret National Reconnaissance Office, the center coordinating all of America's spy satellites, and the center coordinating their reconnaissance data. For Maison, however, the use of the codes to establish the attacker's credibility and capability meant that the American state, and more importantly, the highest and deepest levels of its national security and military establishment, was penetrated by traitors and moles. In other words, again, one finds the possibility that there was a third level at work, above and beyond the rogue network planning the event as a financial crime and as a social engineering incident to inject American power into the Middle East. By calling the White House and revealing their existence, they could only have had a specific objective in mind, the blackmail of the U.S. government, for with such an extensive access to the codes, the possibility existed that they could usurp the authority of the President of the United States and conceivably order the use of nuclear and thermonuclear weapons and flip the global guardian drill to live status, and thus, the only means, argues Maison, allowing George W. Bush to regain control of the military was to physically hold the headquarters of the U.S. Strategic Command at Ofut and to personally issue orders and counter-orders from there. That's why he went there in person. It is in this analytical context that Maison and Tarpley analyzed Bush's statements on 9-11, noting an interesting progression of concepts and some intriguing omissions of others. At 9.30 a.m., after he had finished reading My Pet Goat to the schoolchildren at the Emma Booker Elementary School in Sarasota, Florida, President Bush conferred briefly with his staff, then appeared to press to read the following statement. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a difficult moment for America. I, unfortunately, will be going back to Washington after my remarks. Secretary Rod Page 
and the lieutenant governor will take the podium and discuss escalation or discuss education. Now that's just, there's my Freudian slip, escalation. All right. Secretary Rod Page and the lieutenant governor will take the podium and discuss education. I do want to thank the folks here at Booker Elementary School for their hospitality. Today, we've had a national tragedy. Two airplanes have crashed into the World Trade Center in an apparent terrorist attack on our country. I have spoken to the Vice President, to the Governor of New York, to the Director of the FBI, and have ordered that the full resources of the federal government go to help the victims and their families, and to conduct a full-scale investigation to hunt down and to find those folks who committed this act. Terrorism against our nation will not stand. And now, if you would join me in a moment of silence, may God bless the victims, their families, and America. Thank you very much. Tarpley notes that the key and crucial remark is the reference to an apparent terrorist attack. But also to be noted is that Bush explicitly states that he will be returning to Washington after concluding his remarks, suggesting that at some point between his departure from the Booker Elementary School to his departure from Sarasota on Air Force One, the threat had become clearer and the decision was taken to divert Barksdale and then offered in order to assert personal presidential control over the military's strategic command structure. Indeed, Tarpley states that shortly after leaving the school, the Secret Service learned of a threat to Air Force One. It seems most probable that this threat was precisely that conveyed with the use of classified presidential codes. Then, around 9.42 a.m., the ABC television network broadcast live images of a fire that had broken out in the White House annex, the old executive office building, home to a number of key offices of executive, including that of the vice president. As Maison observes, no information has ever leaked out concerning the origin of the blaze or its exact scale. All that ABC showed was a fixed shot of plumes of black smoke escaping from the building. Approximately 15 minutes later, according to Maison, Vice President Dick Cheney was taken by the Secret Service and escorted to the White House Situation Room below ground. While sharpshooters armed with rocket launchers were deployed around the now evacuated White House complex, these troops, notes Maison, were capable of repelling an assault by airborne troops. In short, they were facing a threat of a very different nature to that later described by Vice President Cheney. That is, at that moment, the threat was not terrorism, it was something else entirely. At approximately the same time this was happening, Air Force One departed Sarasota. Sometime between 9.55 and 9.57 a.m., at the same time that the South Tower of the World Trade Center was about to be demolished. According to Bush Communications Director Dan Bartlett, the presidential airplane climbed at such a steep angle for about 10 minutes that it seemed that the aircraft was going almost straight up. Most significantly, however, Air Force One, in a classic example of security stripping, had no fighter escort as it left Sarasota and would not acquire one until an hour after it had been in the air. Air Force One eventually landed at Barksdale Air Force Base in Louisiana, where most of the press corps was jettisoned, and where, at 1.04 p.m., President Bush made another statement before proceeding on to Offutt Air Force Base in Omaha, Nebraska. 
The text of this statement is unique, not only for what it says, but what it does not say. I want to reassure the American people that the full resources of the federal government are working to assist local authorities to save lives and to help victims of the attacks, of these attacks. Make no mistake, the United States will hunt down and punish those responsible for these cowardly acts. I've been in regular contact with the Vice President, the Secretary of Defense, the National Security Team, and my Cabinet. We have taken all appropriate security precautions to protect the American people. Our military at home and around the world is on high alert status, and we have taken the necessary security precautions to continue the functions of your government. We have been in touch with the leaders of Congress and with world leaders to assure them that we will do whatever is necessary to protect America and Americans. I ask the American people to join me in saying a thanks for all the folks who have been fighting hard to rescue our fellow citizens and to join me in saying a prayer for the victims and their families. The resolve of our great nation is being tested, but make, make no mistake, we will show the world that we will pass this test. God bless. As Mason and Tarpley both observe, there is not a single mention of terrorism in this speech but only of a test, and Bush's words could therefore equally and just as easily refer to an internal revolt, coup, or military conflict as to terrorism. Similarly, a simple terrorist threat, no matter how big or dire, is unlikely to provoke the statement that indicates continuity of government operations were begun. Quote, we have taken the necessary security precautions to continue the functions of your government. End quote. Mason observes that there are two possible readings of this action. In such a context, one can interpret in two different ways the activation of the continuity of government procedure. The simplest explanation is to consider the need to protect the president and other political leaders from the actions of traitors capable of starting a fire in the old executive building and stealing the secret codes of both the presidency and the intelligence agencies. One might also consider whether, on the contrary, the COG, or Cont Continuity of Government Procedure Plan, was put into effect not to protect political leaders from traitors, but was initiated by the traitors themselves to isolate those leaders. The account given by President Dick Cheney is truly strange. He claims that men from the Secret Service seized him in his office and bundled him into the White House bunker without receiving his consent. He appeared to suggest that the same was true for the principal members of the government and Congress. And what else is an operation where the Secret Service takes elected officials and puts them in bunkers for their own security, if not a coup d'etat, or at least a palace coup? In other words, the government in Washington had been seized by the coup, placing its key members under protection, leaving the president to attempt to reassert control over the strategic command structure of the military by his personal presence at its headquarters, forestalling a potential nuclear conflict by surrendering to the demands of the attackers. These considerations, however, still do not add up to a deeper third layer or faction, co-opting and penetrating the rogue element or network within the American national security apparatus. Let us now make an assumption to be argued in the main text more thoroughly that Bush and Cheney and other elements of the federal government knew, to some degree, 
of the 9-11 operation and perhaps even assisted in its planning. Once one adds this assumption, one sees the third level revealed, for Bush and the federal government are then reacting to an operation they know has gone wrong and that has been penetrated or co-opted by someone else. The explanatory power of this assumption, as will be seen, rationalizes certain behavior of the federal government and its domestic and foreign policies quite well and additionally provides a different perspective from which to view certain statements not only of President Bush but of the British Prime Minister at the time, Tony Blair. On January 29, 2002, President Bush delivered his famous Axis of Evil State of the Union address before the Congress. In that speech, as is now known, he accused North Korea, Iraq, and Iran, and states like these and their terrorist allies of attempting to acquire missiles and weapons of mass destruction, including weaponized anthrax, nerve gas, and nuclear weapons. These states, however, could not acquire the technological infrastructure for the production of such weapons on their own without acquiring them from some great power. I suggest, in this context, that the allusion to an axis of evil was a deliberate hint on the part of Bush as to whom the real hidden players may have been. More importantly, according to 9-11 researcher Daniel Hopsicker, British Prime Minister Tony Blair may have let something highly significant out of the bag. Quoting, It was left to British Prime Minister Tony Blair to present the prosecution's case against bin Laden, and he sketched out the Cliff Notes version of the evidence. Tony Blair said, Al-Qaeda is a terrorist organization with ties to a global network. That made sense. The idea that Mohammed Atta and his henchmen needed help from an international organization while they were in the U.S. was easy to understand. Logistical support is difficult to arrange from caves. But what kind of global network? Blair didn't say. Blair's global network remained elusive, unnamed, shadowy, and undefined. Several weeks later, the FBI denied that this global network existed and proposed instead a lone cadre theory, which became the operative assumption in their investigation. But what exactly is that network, that axis of evil? Before answering that question, a personal aspect of my interest in its answer must now be recounted. B. A personal perspective. An email to a cousin. In the years during which the 9-11 truth movement combed over the evidence, testimony, and analyses of various researchers, I read and gathered their writings, dreading to find any confirmation that my intuitions about who had perpetrated the event were true. My intuitions, formed on that terrible day itself, were firstly that no such event could take place without, at some level, the knowledge and complicity of some group in the military national security apparatus of the federal government, and, secondly, that whatever that second rogue level consisted of, their own spokesmen were behaving in a manner that suggested genuine and not insincere panic, and that in turn suggested a third level and a penetrated operation. I came to that conclusion in turn also because, when watching the destruction of the Twin Towers, I thought that I might be looking, that I may be looking at the application of exotic modalities of destruction, including exotic energy weapons. 
This is hardly a popular view in the 9-11 truth community. Indeed, it is the one hypothesis concerning the murder weapon that the overwhelming majority of researchers, with the exceptions of Webster Tarpley, Dr. Judy Wood, and a few others who are trying to understand the architecture of the conspiracy, reject out of hand. The hypothesis of exotic energy weapons, in my view, is not exclusive of the presence of other modalities of the destruction of the Twin Towers. Nevertheless, all of the hypotheses hotly debated in the 9-11 truth community, it is the one which has the most problematical elements, not the least of which are the enormous energy requirements that such a mechanism would involve. In the main text, I shall propose some hypothetical model models for consideration. The problem of the exact mechanism of the controlled demolition of the Twin Towers and standard explosives, nanothermite, mini-nukes, and exotic energy weapon systems are all variations on the mechanism of controlled demolition. So, the problem of the exact mechanism of the controlled demolition of the Twin Towers is the crux interpretum of the 9-11 event. For in all four cases, they render a simple terrorism interpretation impossible. For in the first three hypotheses of controlled demolition, the buildings would have had to have been elaborately and deliberately prepared by careful placement of the explosives, be they standard thermite, nuclear, or otherwise. And in the final instance, that of an energy weapons system. It is almost inconceivable that a mere terrorist organization such as Al-Qaeda or anything similar to it would have access to such technologies. It was during this period of research, in late 2008, and after the now infamous bailout hearings, that I received an email from one of my paternal cousins. We'll simply call him Douglas, whom I had not heard from since we were both nine years old. He had been born in the same year as I, just a few months later. He had been reading some of my books when, in a conversation with his father, my uncle, he realized he was reading his cousin's books, and hence he had decided to contact me to find out my views on who I thought was responsible for 9-11, as he had been doing his own digging and had come to question the narrative of the officially approved conspiracy theory, but also to doubt aspects of the LIHOP, which is let it happen on purpose, and my hop made it happen on purpose. Uh, versions of the events that were then popular. I responded in a lengthy email outlining what I had read in other critics' accounts. Later, I shared this email with Mr. Richard C. Hoagland, where a portion of it appeared on his website, enterprisemission.com. In that email, I summarized my difficulties with the various versions of standard controlled demolition of the Twin Towers and why I thought some form of exotic technology might also be involved, and on that basis went on to outline in crude fashion what I intuited to be the basic architecture of the conspiracy. Quote, So we are left with some version of my Nazi international extraterritorial state with, in my mind, an all-but-proven track record of the post-war investigation of precisely the technologies to bring down the towers. Radical and wild and woolly as I think this scenario sounds, it does in my mind rationalize the rather odd signs of panic that our elite has shown since 9-11. For consider the almost frenzied rush into Ad Afghanistan and Iraq, 
whose true and ultimate purpose, I think, involved much more than oil, and I hint about that ultimate purpose in my books repeatedly. Realizing that they were faced with an extraterritorial state, with possession of extraordinarily sophisticated scalar torsion technology that had been successfully weaponized, they launched a war on terror with radical Islam as the fall guy, when in fact, the real target is something completely different and much more frightening. The behavior of the financial elite during the bailout crisis is another signal, at least to me, that someone has the gun to their heads. They acted like people being blackmailed by some hidden protection racket by insisting on no oversight back in 2008. The only people in historical record that wielded such financial and technolo technological clout that I can think of were, in fact, the post-war Nazis. There is a final, even weirder consideration, and that's Ian Fleming and his James Bond novels slash films. Many people have always considered that he was leaking information in the guise of fiction. Well, consider the movie You Only Live Twice, where you have the following elements clearly displayed. 1. An international conspiracy that is extraterritorial called Spectre, Society for the Promotion of Extortion, Criminality, Terrorism, and Revenge. 2. That society has a secret space program and is using it to interfere with Russian and American space launches, shades of the recent collision of American and Russian satellite in orbit above the Earth, and to bring the two nations to the brink of war. 3. That society has a heavy presence of Japanese criminal underground and, finally, 4. It is headed by an obviously German fellow named Ernst Stavro Blofeld, played by Donald Pleasance, and thus plump, middle-aged, and almost Bormanesque in appearance. So, if one grants the proposition that Fleming is leaking information, then the conclusion is obvious as to what he's trying to say, and I believe this to be the case because, in effect, this is what my own research has been able to verify. In fact, I have been able to argue points 1, 2, and 4 are most likely true, and that would seem to indicate that point 3 is as well. So, with my op within an op within an op scenario is basically that someone with probable access to hidden space technologies and with all but certain access to weaponized versions of scalar torsion technologies brought the Twin Towers down. That someone is some sort of rogue extraterritorial organization with deep and historical connections to the radical Islamic underworld, and that leaves me with, guess who? The Nazis. Thus, I believe the second level of that 9-11 conspiracy, our homegrown elitists, were once again played the fools by the outer and innermost rings of it, in a sort of squeeze from below, squeeze from above methodology a methodology that elite has used itself numerous times. By using that specific methodology against the very people that use it themselves, the message was sent. We know your game, and looky, looky what we can do, what we have possession of. We can literally turn your centers and instrumentalities of power to dust before your very eyes. We are deeply penetrated into your own covert agencies and plans, and the game is now afoot. Consider also the Masonic symbolism of what was struck in that way. The twin towers, the twin Masonic pillars of Yaquin and Boaz, sitting in the heart of the Anglo-American elite's financial district. Richard's analysis of the esoteric symbolism, who's the enemy, really, at 
enterprisemission.com forward slash tower2.htm is as far as I'm concerned right on target as is his analysis of why radical Islam would be involved. I think too he might be willing to entertain my particular twist on his scenario in that one has not only radical Muslims but worse unreconstructed Nazis involved with it. After all the historical connections between the two run very deep. The Muslims do not have access to such technologies, whereas the Nazis were investigating them with a vengeance since at least 1933. So that's it in a nutshell. While many, if not most, 9-11 researchers, whether defenders of the official scenario or its critics, would be inclined to dismiss my informal musings as the wildest, most bizarre ravings, and the least probable of all the alternative scenarios available, when reduced to its bare conceptual essence, the scenario I propose to my cousin is not really all that different than that proposed by others. I merely am willing to connect the dots they have provided with that greatest genocidal technologi technological ideology of the last century and its long associations with radical Islamic terrorism, Nazism. This post-war Nazi group, as I have noted elsewhere, had deep post-war ties with rogue elements of a basically fascist mindset within the American financial and intelligence deep state in the post-war period. That group, represented by Alan and John Foster Dulles, or Dulles, John McCloy, and others of the Sullivan and Cromwell crowd. This hypothesis is not easily dismissible when one ponders the actual details uncovered by many in that 9-11 truth community itself, which suggest that this Nazi element is involved. They have uncovered these details. But like all such uncomfortable details, they have chosen to ignore these clues, and thus no effort has yet been made to integrate their significance and their implications into the architecture of the various conspiracy theories concerning 9-11 that have been proffered. I contend that this failure does egregious harm to the interpretation of 9-11 itself, and that in part is what this book explores in the following pages. Webster Griffin Tarpley, as we have seen, has had no hesitation in describing Tony Blair's global network as a fascist network centered in London and New York. It is therefore no, not a great leap of the imagination to state that this network also has centers in Frankfurt and that some of its historical and technological roots lie in Nazism. This third layer, as I shall attempt to argue in the main text, exposes itself in a variety of clues, not the least of which are those clues which suggest exotic modalities of the Twin Towers' destruction, be that nanothermite, mini-nukes, or exotic energy weapons. Viewed in this way, such an approach to 9-11 is an attempt to view the event from the perspective of Mr. Richard Dolan's idea of a breakaway civilization that secretly emerged over the decades since World War II, a civilization that emerged because of its decades-long access to secret funds, a great deal of which came from the exploitation of Axis loot, and that emerged because of its use of that vast war chest to fund the secret development of various exotic technologies. Such an approach is not meant to delegitimize the efforts of those 9-11 researchers who stick to nuts and bolts and who do not consciously attempt to integrate their speculations about architecture of the conspiracy into such a wide historical and interpretive context.
Indeed, their approach has uncovered most of the clues re-examined in this book. I merely argue that it is perhaps time to reconsider these clues within a much larger technological and historical context, for that context leads us to UFOs, to the Black Project's world, to the national security structure and Mr. Dolan's breakaway civilization hypothesis, and to that post-war extraterritorial Nazi organization, of course, to Islamic radicalism and terrorism. This third level is not therefore exclusively, at its deepest level, merely or exclusively Anglo-American of, uh, excuse me, this third level is not therefore exclusively, at its deepest level, merely or exclusively Anglo-American fascists, nor composed simply of corrupt financial oligarchs in London or Wall Street, as Mr. Tarpley observed. It is that, but it is also much more. It is also, at that deepest level, Nazi and German and international all at once. Like all mafias, it has its factions, and like all mafias, its alliances are always and only of convenience. It can and does go to war within itself. So in this sense, this book is a development and continuation of my examinations in previous books begun in Reich of the Black Sun, continued in SS Brotherhood of the Bell, Secrets of the Unified Field, The Philosopher's Stone, The Nazi International, Roswell and the Reich, Saucers, Swastikas and Psyops, Covert Wars and Breakaway Civilizations, Covert Wars and the Clash of Civilizations, and finally, my most recent book, The Third Way. In that last book, I pointed out that one of the goals of the post-war Nazi International was precisely to destabilize Anglo-American petroleum interest in the Middle East, and that the war on terror might be a convenient front for a war against this Nazi International, connected as it was and is to Islamic terrorist groups. Consider only the utility of a global war on terror from a variety of points of view. A war on terror is essentially a war against an invisible extraterritorial enemy. It provides a rationalization and justification for overt and or covert action anywhere in the world, and thus for any ideology bent on world domination from American unipolarism through the special claims of religion to Nazism. A war on terror works as well for extraterritorial organizations as it does for American imperialists. Consequently, by no means do I mean to suggest that all the careful deliberations and analyses of other researchers are wrong with respect to this architecture and the perpetrators of this mass murder. I mean merely to suggest that the interpretive net must be cast much wider and that the suggestive fascist links they themselves have uncovered must be appropriated into any hypothetical 9-11 scenario. That fascist devil is in the details, and these details the 9-11 truth community itself has uncovered and then ignored, perhaps because dealing with them is to deal with the historically and apocalyptically unthinkable. I propose in this book not to ignore those details. They are chilling. For like it or not, there's a clear and palpable Nazi connection that constantly hovers on the edges and centers of the drama. Was there such a third level to 9-11? I have always suspected there is, 
and this book is an attempt to elaborate that suspicion. This then continues with part one, Problems and Problematics, which has starts with a quote. It says, it was left to British Prime Minister Tony Blair to present the prosecution's case against bin Laden, and he sketched out the Cliff Notes version of the evidence. Tony Blair said, Al-Qaeda is a terrorist organization with ties to a global network. Daniel Hopsicker, welcome to Terrorland, Mohammed Atta and the 9-11 cover-up in Florida. And that's well, and interesting that he notes some things about, about fiction, and he talks about um, the James Bond author Ian Fleming, because I have noted several times myself about how basically if you look at the story in uh, Captain America 2, The Winter Soldier, and even Captain America 1 with the Nazis always searching for exotic technology, you can even see it in the movie uh, Hellboy, right? That's how they came up with Hellboy. The Nazis have always been looking for exotic, occult, like me metaphysical, all this type of technology for a long time, including building UFOs and all this kind of stuff like that. And so you look at movies like Hellboy, what were the Nazis doing? They conjured up a portal using technology and other means and brought, you know, opened up this portal to another world and brought out Hellboy. You look at um, Captain America 1 and the Red Skull went and found the, uh, the Tesseract, right, which, which contained one of the Infinity Stones that we would later come to be known. Um, and then you look at Captain America 2 and it spells out in great detail that Hydra, which is the Nazi science, the rogue Nazi science division, right, um, basically took over and infiltrated the, the Security Council, right, and everything else, that they were deeply embedded in the government and everything else, which is basically what he's saying in this book and others, but at the same time pointing out that Ian Fleming has been giving us clues, which also brings me to another point. Um, why Spectre was such a weird fucking movie. It didn't seem to make much sense. It was like it was thrown together to send the message. I, like, I've watched all the other movies and thought they were okay, especially Casino Royale, but the other, but the, the last one, Spectre, was really, really weird. Um, it just, it was such a strange movie. Um, and if you even look at Skyfall before that, they throw a lot of signals which you've seen in other movies previously, like in The Matrix. In The Matrix, he's, in, he's reading a book, Simulation and Simulacra, and he's in room 101, and he gets a knock on the door, and get, but before that, he sees on the computer screen that tells him to follow the white rabbit, in which he does, and then he runs into Trinity, and so on and so forth. So 101 is like in school, right? You got English 101, which is like the first, the introduction. It's basically saying pay attention, right? And if you look at Skyfall and James Bond, he's chasing the villain who's dressed as a police officer, and when they get on the train, you see the, the guy, the, 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 the main villain in the movie, turn, and his, on his shoulder patch is the number 101. And very shortly after that, he goes through a train car that has the numbers on it, 96669, very clearly. And then they go on and on and on, like in The Dark Knight Rises, um, before the Bane blows up the, uh, the football field and everything like that, and the mayor gets killed. The camera pans up to where the mayor is sitting in the box when he, before he gets killed, and it has the numbers 322 on it, which the numbers 322 are connected to the Skull and Bone Society, where a lot of the presidents supposedly have come from, and so on and so forth. Um, and then you look at parallels in the movie Olympus Has Fallen, which is where the, the White House gets sacked and gets taken over and the, prison, the president gets held captive and they have these nuclear codes and all this other stuff like that. Um, and 
you look at all of the things about Olympus and the towers and so on and so forth. But I don't want to. I'm gonna. I'm gonna trail off and start ranting about that shit. So I don't want to do that right now. Um, what I do want to do is um, just. I just got this book. I drove uh, like a hundred miles back out to this bookstore in Richmond, Virginia, um, because when I was out here last week, um, I ordered it to come here because I actually just like to come out to this the city. I love Richmond. I'll probably be here for a week. And the book came in, and it's called Hidden Finance, Rogue Networks, and Secret Sorcery, The Fascist International, 9-11, and Penetrated Operations by Joseph P. Farrell. He's an author that I've been following for years because um, uh, one of the things, um, I'm mentioning this again, it's kind of like a, a uh, it's kind of name dropping, but um, yesterday I met with the second time uh, with a friend um, named Christopher Birkenbein, who's a project manager at NASA. And he's a scientist, and he has a degree in applied physics. And we met at the bookstore yesterday, another one in Newport News, which is where I drove from yesterday, or this morning, actually. Um, and we, as we were talking, uh, one of the things that came up were conspiracy theories. And he mentioned, he says, yeah, you know, conspiracy theories are interesting. I don't completely discount them. He's, and, and by the way, this is a very sober guy. Um, hey, Tony. What, oh, hey, Sin, Agni, Aunt, Tony. What's up, North? Um, He's a very sober guy. Ant Tony, you might actually know him or have heard him. He's, uh, he's one of the guys uh, on Wisdom. He's one of the Wisdomers, Christopher Birkenbein, the NASA scientist who does all the, the science talks there. Um, and so I've met him for the second time. First time was on Monday. Second time was uh, Thursday. Um, and one of the things he said about conspiracy theories is that even though he doesn't agree with the conclusions of the conspiracy theorists, he enjoys the fact that they use a lot of research, just like in this book. Um, he cites lots of different references, resources, and as the book goes on further and further, he, he researches and cites a lot of science, a lot of science documents, and all of it is um, detailed in an extensive bibliography at the end of the book where all the resources come from, including, um, including websites and everything like that, so, um, and where you can go and find out the information for yourself. And then, of course, he's just been going on this long tail of, of tracing all this stuff in a lot of his, his uh, books previously. Um, and it, it's really interesting because these guys are able to put together stuff that really keeps me interested in science, history, politics, finance, and things like that. I'm currently reading his other book, which I put the link to the first reading I did of it, both on Spreaker and Colin here, which is called um, Babylon's Banksters. Um, the Alchemy of Deep Physics, High Finance, and Ancient Religions, um, which is an impressive, he's, he's really an impressive storyteller, and um, the way he weaves things together is fascinating. Whether it be true or not, it's a good read, but it's not just one of these, if you look at it as purely fiction, it's not simply a purely fiction read, like just for nothing, just to waste time, like somebody would doom scroll on the internet. You could look at it more like true science fiction, if you will, in that you can educate yourself as well as be entertained while you're reading it, because it's fascinating the connections he puts together. It's it's sort of like um, uh, like uh, creative nonfiction almost. It's a it's a really cool book, and I have several of his, which led me on to researching a lot more interesting things, um, including, you know, uh, Paul Ilovilet's Secrets of Anti-Gravity Propulsion and others. So. That's it for this reading of uh, Hidden Finance, Rogue Networks, and Secret Sorcery, The Fascist International, 9-11, and
penetrated operations by Joseph P. Farrell, published in 2016 um, by um, Adventures Unlimited Press. All right. Stay well, everybody.